Hello, September. <laughs> September, the month that doesn't know what it wants to be, right? Just as Alex was saying at the beginning, you know, is this, is this the end of summer? Because astronomically, this is really considered the first uh, or the last month of summer, right? But meteorologically, this is considered the first month of fall. So let me see that show of hands again. Who of you like fall? And who of you like summer? You know what? All you people, all you people who like fall, you are so gullible. You're gullible to all those pretty pictures of the leaves and never really looks like that. And you're so gullible to the manufacturers of anything pumpkin spice who just can't wait to get their hands on you and put it in everything from coffee to lasagna. You're so gullible. Summer is so much better, right? Right. Yes, thank you. Pastor said so. <laughs> and September is also the best time of the year for baseball. All the, all the playoffs are coming, and the pennant chases are going on. And how many of you know, raise your hand if you know that baseball is the best sport ever. You know, football, everybody go, oh, football's coming. Football, George Will once said, football is nothing more than committee meetings punctuated by violence. <laughs> the huddle, then the play, then back to the huddle, and back to the play, right? And we won't even talk about soccer and tennis and golf. or Those aren't even real sports. We know that, right? <laughs> and September is also the very best time for crabs. Raise your hand if you like Maryland seafood. Yeah, it's the best anywhere, right? Some people, oh, it's too messy. It's, it's too much work for so little. What a wuss. <laughs> yeah. So, so here, let, let me say it all together now. Raise your hand if you like summer, you like baseball, you're an Oriole fan, and you like crabs. Okay, you are my tribe. You are the people that are right. All the rest of you need help. You see what I did there? With a few leading questions and a few disparaging comments, I have actually uncovered disagreement and created division in this room, right? And I've even created a somewhat uncomfortable atmosphere because that's what happens when we start talking about our disagreements, when we start talking about our differences. And I did it on purpose because I believe that that is a reflection of where we are as a culture right now. As a society, we have devolved into what is known as tribalism. Have you ever heard that word? Tribalism is where we choose to actually define ourselves by whatever category, by our politics, by our ethnicity, by our socioeconomic status, by our gender, by our sexuality, on and on and on and on. We actually choose division. And we wind up creating ever smaller and smaller and ever more narrow and narrow groupings of people with whom we feel we can actually relate. And all the people outside of our group we tend to see as outsiders. We tend to see them as people who are wrong, as people who are less than, as people who are inferior. David Brooks is a columnist for the New York Times, if you're familiar with him, and he's just written a, a fantastic new book called Second Mountain, The Search for a Moral Life. And I want to quote this to you. I think I have it on the screen as well. Look at what he says. Tribalism 
is always erecting boundaries and creating friend-enemy distinctions. The tribal mentality is a warrior mentality based on scarcity. Life is a battle for scarce resources, and it's always us versus them, zero sum. The end justifies the means. Politics is war. Ideas are combat. It's kill or be killed. Mistrust is the tribalist worldview. Tribalism is community for lonely narcissists. Does that seem like a pretty accurate description of where we are as a people? Is where we are in the American culture? And the question is, how does the church relate to that? How is the church responding, the people of God, the people of Jesus, responding in a culture like that? Unfortunately, I think it's sad but true to say that we're not doing well. The church, the Jesus people, when you think about our internal differences, how we view things, we play that out in public, right? We air our dirty laundry just as much as everyone else. There's a whole group of people who consider themselves heresy hunters who are out there in social media letting you know where you're wrong in your beliefs. And we show the world a very divided group of followers. And even our external differences with culture itself. Sometimes I feel like people view the church as a political action committee. We're just going to go after our rights and we're going to defend our rights no matter who gets hurt in the process. And we also have this persecution complex. Oh my gosh, you didn't say Merry Christmas. You're anti-Christian. We forget who we are. We forget who we've been called to be. And we are just as tribalistic as any other group out there. And you know what that does to our testimony, to our faith, to our proclamation of Jesus? It makes us irrelevant. When we're seen and perceived like everybody else, the church is just another special interest. And yet, that's not who we're called to be, is it? Jesus says this in Matthew 5 as he's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you are the light of the world. How many of you have ever heard that before? Have you ever stopped to realize when he says that, he's not talking to individuals. Although we are little lights, what he's saying is you, the people of God, my people, are the light of the world. Like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, the lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. A city on a hill that can't be hidden. See, we can't be hidden even if we wanted to be hidden. So if we're shining beautifully, then it's seen. If we're not shining beautifully, that's also seen. Jesus has just placed his people in that position, and there's nothing we can do about it. We can either obey and be beautiful, or we can become an ugly attraction. I'll never forget, I've had the privilege in my life of driving across the United States five times, each at a different uh, latitude. Latitude? Longitude? Latitude. Thanks. It's great we have all these teachers in here. You've got to get everything right. And in, in driving across the country five times, I realized what a beautiful nation we have. It is so diverse, and it is so 
beautiful in its topography. And I'll never forget the very first time I had drove this course, I was on Route 40, US 40, going across the Southwest. And a kid from this area, having grown up, never really understood what the Southwest looked like. Now it's my favorite part of the whole country. But I'll never forget driving in the early dusk, just as the day was turning into evening, driving past the city of Albuquerque, New Mexico, and looking at the hues of color of just unbelievable purples and pinks and oranges. And the city itself is built into the hill, and so there's lights everywhere. And it just left such an amazing impression with me. I've never really gone back and spent time in Albuquerque other than a day or two, but it's like it just is so trapped in my mind as every time I read this passage, I think of Albuquerque. And then I've had the opportunity as well several times in my life to be in Israel and literally standing on the place where they believe Jesus was delivering this sermon, pointing up to the top of the hills, what we call the Golan Heights, where a city that sits there would be so evident to everyone. Everyone would see it. Everyone would know it. That's what he's calling us to be. We are the light of the world, the city on the hilltop that cannot be hidden. And so the church has a very special purpose. The community of God is called to stand out from the culture. It's called to be evident. It's called to be visible. It's called to demonstrate a different way of living. It's called to manifest the kingdom of God that points to the king. It's called to be the beautiful community. We're in a series called Beautiful Things. And today that's what I want to spend some time on. What does it mean to be the beautiful community? What does it mean that God has brought us together and given us this charge to light up a dark world around us? To be a people who stand out, not as holier than thou, not stand out by separating ourselves and distinguishing ourselves by thinking our morality or our ethics or our conduct is somehow better than everybody else, but being a light that leaves the impression of beauty, that leaves the impression of saying, that's a place I want to visit. That's something that I want to experience. Alex told us, reminded us several weeks ago that the Generation Church motto is this, we exist to be the bride of Christ that is beautiful to a world that God loves. Look at that for a minute. We exist, the whole purpose for us being here, the whole purpose for Generation Church existing is to be the bride of Christ. Now that's kind of insider language, right? If you don't know scripture, then telling the world that you're the bride of Christ, they're like, okay, <laughs> But we know, we understand what it means. It means that we have been joined together with the Savior of the world. We have the privilege of walking arm in arm the presence that we talked about and sang about this morning. We have that privilege. And we are to be, like any bride, radiant. And we are to be beautiful because the people that look upon us in the world, those that are far from God, need to see that beauty. And so he has called Generation Church into existence to be beautiful, to be the beautiful community. And what does that mean? Well, 
If you think about it, going way, way back, if you study philosophy or are familiar with it at all, you know that there are three transcendental values, and those things are truth, beauty, and goodness. It goes all the way back at least to Plato, but has come down through the ages as something that's recognized that every human being values, truth, beauty, and goodness. And ever since the Enlightenment, ever since the time that was known as the Age of Reason, which is basically after the Renaissance, it's the time where you see a lot of the revolutions, the American Revolution, the French Revolution, all of this was called the Age of Reason or the Enlightenment. And it had this very special and emphatic emphasis on truth. Truth got exalted above beauty and truth got exalted above goodness. And if you think about history of mankind, it's kind of a cycle that goes around because right before the Age of Enlightenment was what we mostly know as the Renaissance. And the Renaissance, as you can guess, which of those three it kind of emphasized? Beauty, right? And so we're in a period and actually now coming out of a period where truth has been exalted above all else. Getting things right has become the most important thing. Understanding Science, understanding reason, has had such a, a powerful hold on Western civilization now for hundreds of years, but it's loosening. And so we as a church need to understand that culture in which we live. We need to understand that truth is important and will always be important, but it isn't always the thing that people are looking for. And so it does very little good for a church to be out there proclaiming answers to questions that nobody's asking. If we want to be a church that looks beautiful to a world that God loves, we have to understand what the world is looking for. We have to understand what the world thinks about. And right now, I'm telling you, it's beauty. Because how many of you turn on CNN or MSNBC or Fox News and go, oh, this is a beautiful dialogue these people are having? It's not like that, right? And how many churches are out there waving banners and beating people over the heads with their proclamation of truth that so much of the world says, I don't want to have anything to do with that? If that's the way you guys act, why would I want to be in that? I can get that anywhere. And so I'm going to give you my definition of tribalism. I think tribalism is best described this way. Tribalism is contending for truth without the tools of beauty and goodness. Because that's what it is, right? It's talking heads trying to convince you that they're right, trying to convince you that their version is the truth and everybody else is wrong and everybody else is inferior. Fyodor Dostoevsky, the great Russian writer, in his novel, The Idiot, makes a, a fantastic statement that if I ever get a tattoo, it's going to be on this arm. And it says, beauty will save the world. Think about that for a second. Isn't that great? Beauty will save the world. Many people consider Dostoevsky's writing almost prophetic and his life almost prophetic. And so that was written probably 130 years ago. And I think it's more true now than it probably was then. Beauty will save the world, at least in Western civilization in this time period that you and I live and that which generation church exists. Beauty will save the world. So we have to become a beautiful community. We have to be something that people want. We have to be something that people are willing to invest their lives in. 
We have to be the city on the hill, the light of the world that Jesus has called us to be. And what does that look like? And what is it based on? I would say two things. The first is we have to understand our message, and our message is inclusion. Our message is a message of radical hospitality. It says that no matter how you're treated out there, no matter how you're divided, no matter how you're judged out there, here you are not. Radical hospitality has to be a hallmark of who we are because it's beautiful, right? Have you ever experienced beautiful hospitality? You know, think of the time you were most weary or most in need and someone just came alongside of you and blessed you by just enfolding you and enveloping you with whatever it was that you were in need of. So that's our message of inclusion. Secondly, it has to be our manner of interaction, the way we treat each other. And I would call this generous humility. We need to have a sense of generous humility. That means we have to be focused outwardly toward one another. And so here's the thing that I want us to understand. The beautiful community, our message, we're going to look at that first. Our message is three parts. If we can commit to making this our voice to the community around us, then I think Generation Church will be blessed of God to fulfill its purpose as the city on the hill. The first is this. We have to say you are welcome no matter who you are. You are welcome no matter who you are. Secondly, you are wanted regardless of what you have to offer. And thirdly, you are worthy of the investment of our lives in you. If people feel welcome, wanted, and worthy, will they join? Will they come and be a part? Will they find the spirit of Jesus in that? Absolutely. So that's how we express the beauty of being in relationship with Christ to a world that's divided and a world that's hurting and a world that's broken up into tribalism. You're welcome, you're wanted, and you're worthy. And how do we get that across? How do we get that across to skeptical people? Because it's easy to say, right? I can show you a whole lot of mission statements from church that talk about that kind of thing. But I wonder how many really are welcoming. How many really do want the people that don't have much to offer in terms of finances or serving or whatever? How many really take the time to tell people they're worthy? Not because of what they're giving to the church, but they're worthy of the church giving to them. How do we get that across? Well, I would say this, by making those statements a reality within our own generation community. Only to the degree that this is true among us will anybody out there ever want to come in and be a part of it. So I want to ask you bluntly this morning, have we as Generation Church done a good job of making you feel welcome? Have we done a good job of making you feel wanted? Do you feel worthy here? Because people are investing in you. People are willing to come alongside of you and share your hurts and share your joys and do life together with you. What would God say? See, generous humility tied to all of those statements 
actually creates the beautiful community that God's called us to be. Paul says it this way when he's talking to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2. And I've chosen the message translation here, so look at the screen. He says, if you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in the community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor. (laughs) Agree with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. Does that sound like the American dream? Does that sound like the values that culture puts forth? sounds directly opposite, right? It's opposed to the way our culture tells you to live your life and aligns its values. And Paul says, look, it's all based on how you view what God has done for you. If you have received anything from your relationship with Jesus, he's saying, if, if the love that God has shown you in Jesus, if the forgiveness and the reconciliation that God has given to us mean anything, then we must understand that that's what we've been called to do for others. We get ourselves out of the way, we stop pushing ourselves ahead, and we go after the ones that are feeling left out, unwelcome, unworthy, and unwanted. Last week, Alex talked about cultivating beautiful fruit. Did you eat that mango? No. Okay. Didn't think, after he handled it, I thought nobody's going to eat that thing. <laughs> but here, here's the thing. Here's what I believe is the fruit of the beautiful community. First, it's demonstrating unity in diversity. See, nowhere are we as Christians called to deny that we are diverse. The diversity actually points to the beauty of the creator, right? The artist who has made us in his image across this beautiful palette of colors and experiences and says this is what beauty looks like because this is what God looks like. And so we don't deny that that exists. We actually celebrate that, don't we? Doesn't the book of Revelation say that in the end, who's going to be there worshiping around the throne? People from what? Every nation, every tribe, every tongue. And our responsibility is what? Your kingdom come right here, right now. People from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. Worshiping God together. Understanding and appreciating the diversity, but building it into something unified. See, tribalism is the opposite. Tribalism demands conformity, right? Tribalism says you have to look like this, think like this, act like this. But we're supposed to demonstrate unity and diversity. Secondly, the fruit is loving the unlovable. It's easy to love the people that are lovable, right? Hard to love the people that are unlovable. Who do we think we are judging that? Who does God deem unlovable? No one. So who do we get to deem unlovable? No one. So we bring them in and we show them the love that has been shown to us. Tribalism, on the other hand, devalues those people, right? 
anybody outside the tribe is unworthy. Anyone outside the tribe doesn't deserve my attention or my love. And then thirdly, the fruit is serving God by serving others. That's what Paul's saying there. He's saying, forget yourself. Forget yourself and serve other people. Tribalism says no, exactly the opposite. Tribalism demeans other people as unworthy so that they can serve their self-interest, right? That's what distinguishes the church from being another political action committee to being the people of God. The fact that we're serving other people by forgetting ourselves. Now, in practical terms, we say to ourselves, well, how can I do that? I can't not take care of myself. I can't not work. I can't not make sure that I have enough in the bank. Can I challenge you and say, yes, you can? That's exactly what faith is. That's exactly what God has called us to do. God has said to us, if you have faith in me that I will take care of you, that I will meet every single need in the appropriate way at the appropriate time, then I am freeing you up to go serve other people. I got to tell you, I got to be honest with you, this was one of the most important lessons I've ever learned in my life, that I can really trust God. I mean, it's easy to say we have faith, right? But when you really have to trust God and he really does show up, that's the most freeing thing ever. Think of how much time and energy we exert on trying to make sure that everything is good and safe and proper and protected. That's the scarcity mentality that David Brooks is talking about. If there's only a limited pie, I've got to make sure I get mine, right? But the kingdom of God is unlimited. And so God simply says, trust me, I'll take care of you so that you can take care of her. Or you can take care of him. That's a beautiful community. When people are living that way, not living in their self-interest, not worried about taking care of their own concerns, then the beauty comes shining forth. So what is it that unites us? How do we find that unity and diversity? We do think differently. We do look differently. We do have different experiences. We do have different perspectives. What do we have that unites us? When Ephesians 4, Paul says, Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. So what did he say? United in the Spirit. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and in all and living through all. So what is it that we have in united? Our unity is in what? It's in our trust and our faith in Christ. And when we have that trust and faith in Christ, we are given the gift of his Holy Spirit. So the Spirit of God is the thing that unites us, and it's the thing that continues to make that bond strong, regardless of anything else that divides us. The Spirit of God lives in us. How do we love the unlovable? Well, that's simply the imitation of God, as I was alluding to before. And what does it mean to love? I know we've had some good conversations on trying to find the definition of love. I, I, I think the best definition of love I've ever heard is this, to love is to will the good of the other. It's not a feeling, it's not an emotion, it's an action, it's an attitude to will the good of another. And so you don't even have to get in the judgment game, right? You don't have to, you don't have to try to decide if this person's worthy. It's just a commitment to 
to, to will the good of the other. Because the will means that you'll follow through with it, right? It's not just the feeling. But you're actually going to follow through. And we love because we've first been loved, right? As you said last week. That's the only way we can love. And when we look at the cross, what can we see but someone who willed the good of another to such a degree that he was willing to give up heaven and come down as a servant, as a slave, and give his life for us. That's where Paul goes in the very next section of Philippians 2. I encourage you to read it sometime this week. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy is what you've heard, Jesus says. But I say love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. And in that way, you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. Is that your heart's desire? To look like Dad? It's his desire for you. And then serving others. Again, the key here is just to understand that serving others is never about them. See, that's where we get caught, isn't it? We start thinking, well, I did this for so-and-so, and they didn't give me anything in response. God's sitting up there going, yeah, times six billion. <laughs> so, so if the focus isn't on us, and we're not so worried about our reputation and our identity and our future and our protection and la, 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 we get rid of the us, then we become free to be about them. So serving's not about them. It's about doing things that God created you to do and doing it for his glory, right? So we serve others because we love God, and it doesn't matter whether they're lovable or worthy or any of those things. We just do it. Paul encourages us. He says, work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. So when you get up and you go to work tomorrow, remember that the person who's truly signing your paycheck is the Lord, right? And give everything you've got regardless of what you think you're getting or not getting in response. I'm going to jump ahead just in the interest of time. Let me give you a quote, a second quote from David Brooks' book, Second Mountain. Because here's the point. Paul says, do everything for Christ. Do it without complaining and arguing. Do it without complaining and arguing. That's tribalism, right? Do it without tribalism. Because no one then can criticize you. Oh, they'll try, but it can't stick. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in the world full of crooked and perverse people. This is Philippians 2. I do want to hit this. Let me just say that line again. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in the world, full of crooked and perverse people. Doesn't that sound like Jesus saying, be a light of the world, be a city on a hill? It doesn't matter that the world is crooked and perverse. Jesus loves them. It doesn't matter that ye may not seem like they care. Jesus died for them. It doesn't matter whether or not they'll even respond positively. Jesus says, serve them. And by doing so, we become a beautiful community. By doing so, we overcome the tribalism. So here's Brooks's second comment. He says, tribalism seems like a way to restore the bonds of community. See, because the, the devil comes as an angel of light sometimes, right? So 
Tribalism seems like a way to restore community. It certainly does bind people together, but it's actually the dark twin of community. Community is connection based on mutual affection. Tribalism, in a sense I'm using it here, is connected, connection based on mutual hatred. Right? Think about that when you flip on the news today. Community is based on a common humanity and tribalism on a common foe. David Brooks is not a Christian, although he's admittedly in a very interesting faith journey. He's born an Orthodox Jew. But look at the power of his words here. The thing that he recognizes, even if he doesn't call it Christ. Community is mutual affection and common humanity. What's the one thing every person has that's ever been born and ever will be born? The image of God birthed into them, right? That's what we focus on as the community. So as we prepare ourselves, we're going to have communion in just a moment here. Here's a question I want you to contemplate today or this week sometime. What needs to change in my mind and in my heart that will enable me to escape the lore of tribalism, because it's all around, and entrust myself to the community of God's beloved? What needs to change in the way I think? What needs to change in my perspective? You understand, you've heard us say often enough that that's what repentance is, right? The Greek word metanoia means change your mind, develop a new perspective. So what needs to change? What do I need to repent of, Lord, that leads me to be seduced and lured into this tribalism that makes me want to figure out who's my people, who can I hang out with, and recognize the common humanity that we have and really trust ourselves in that common humanity as the beloved community and share that mutual affection. Because the more we share it among ourselves, the more people outside will recognize it as genuine and true and be drawn to it. Because Jesus said this. He said, they will know that you are mine, not because you got it all right, not because you are the keepers of truth, but because you love one another, because you're a beautiful, beautiful community. So I'm going to invite you to come to the table in just a second. Actually, Jesus is inviting you to come to his table. That's why we call it the Lord's table. We call it communion because the invitation is into his presence. There's nothing magical about a piece of wafer and a cup of juice. But by faith, we believe that Jesus is allowing us to partake of his life. The giving of his body, the giving of his blood is the greatest act of love there ever could be, right? No greater love than laying down your life. And so it's an invitation to come and receive his life and receive his love so that we may have the faith to leave these doors and go out this week and give away his love and give away our lives.
But here's the thing. Sometimes we say, I, I'm not worthy. Some churches actually practice closed communion where you have to have a set of beliefs and convictions before you're allowed to even partake. Not here. Please understand this morning that Jesus is saying to you, each one of us, individually and personally, you are welcome, no matter who you are. You are wanted, regardless of what you think you have to offer or not offer. And you are worthy. You are worthy of my going to the cross and giving my life for you. So I invite you to come and partake of the cup partake of the bread. Just before we go, I want you to do one more thing for me. It's fun not being the lead pastor because I can ask you to do things that he might not ask you. I want you to look around the room but not just around the room. I want you to look in the eyes of the people in this room. Because the only way we're ever going to become a beloved community is when we see each other as people. When we understand that every person in this room is a gift in our lives. Not just somebody we come and sit near in church on a Sunday morning. See, if you think, if you think you've chosen generation because you like the preaching or the music or the kids program or any of those, and that's the reason for coming, let me tell you, God's got a much bigger and deeper program than that. I believe God draws people and brings together his unique set of giftedness and his unique set of purposes and plans that only we can accomplish. Because if we're just here because of the programming and the music and the preaching and all of that, that's not a community. That's not what community is. Community is able to look in the eyes of every single person around you and welcome them into your life and let them feel wanted and let them feel worthy. It's like God has given us all of these gifts. And imagine on Christmas morning, you say, oh, weren't they pretty? And just leave them there unopened. We don't want to be unopened. God doesn't wish for us to be unopened. Everything we can imagine as the church going forward, everything that you hope for Generation Church to be for you and for your families and for this community is already in this room. There's more that God will bring, but we have to begin here. And so I want you to look around and I want you to make eye contact. As uncomfortable as that may be for you, I don't care. Because until we start breaking down the cultural barriers. We have no right to call ourselves community. We have no right to call ourselves people of God. When God is sitting, the image of God is sitting right next to you and you don't even know who they are. So I'll only make you do it for 10 seconds, okay? Let me go. Go ahead, look around. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Nine, 
10. Hey, thank you so much for being good sports. And you people who like fall, may it be the best fall ever for you. Go and have a great week. Be a blessing to others as God has blessed you. And love them the way he loves you in his name. Amen.